What is going on, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 58 of RizzoCast. I'm Steven Rizzotto, and we are joined today by a former major league pitcher who pitched in parts of six seasons in the big leagues from 1982 to 1988, five of which were with the San Francisco Giants. He's the current host of Extra Innings on KMBR after every Giants weekend game. It is the former big league right hitter, Bill Lasky. Bill, how you doing? Welcome. I'm good, Steve. Thanks for inviting me on. Good time to talk some baseball. As we all know, the Giants are in first place, and it's always great to talk about a first place team. It's always great to talk about a first place team, for sure. We're going to get to uh, get to that in just a sec. I want to mention the Say Hey Kid, because we just celebrated his birthday. Uh, at the time we're recording this, it was yesterday, but they're they're throwing a big celebration for him tonight. Uh, so right off the bat here, what are some of your fond memories of Willie Mays? Do you remember kind of your first interaction with him? What do you remember from watching him play? Well, in the early 80s, they used to have the old timers game. And that's really the first time I got to meet him. And of course, Marichelle was there. McCovey was there. Tito Fuentes was there. And they were all in uniform playing. So it was pretty cool to see 24 go out to center field at Candlestick Park and play in this old timers game and to watch him swing and to watch him play and along with a whole host of other great giants. And that was really the first time I got to meet him. And then as years went on, I got to see him in the clubhouse. But one of the biggest things I always talk about is when you shake his hand, his hand is so large and strong and powerful, big forearms. And that's right. You know, you start thinking that's how he generated his power because he went all the way, he went right field, center, left, um, but that was one of the biggest things I knew when I first met him was his handshake and then got to know him as an individual and, and sat down at many events and just sat and listened to talk. And you could just bring up a subject and he would ramble on. And sure enough, more and more people would come around you when you're talking to him. And I'd always say, don't ask him a question, let him talk because he loved to talk. And when he talked, he'd come up with things that were maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago, but in his mind, they were yesterday. And those are the great stories you'll always hear from Willie Mays. And, uh, you know, the Giants, uh, he's an icon. You know, you see a statue out at Oracle Park, 24 palm trees around it. Um, and you look at Willie McCovey and Juan Marichal and all the statues are all great Hall of Famers. But Willie is number one in my mind. Yeah, and he, if, what something that I always think about is, if he did not play at Candlestick Park where the wind was blowing towards the right field line, I think it's fair to say he would have gotten to that all-time home run mark before Henry Aaron did. So that's saying something for sure. Um, so happy birthday to Willie Mays, 90. That's pretty amazing. You know what, Steve? you got a point there because yeah. Candlestick winds pushed a lot of balls back. In the early 80s, Jack Clark used to just cuss when he did a bullet out to left field and they'd catch it in a warning track. And you look at all the other ballparks, Atlanta, Cincinnati, even New York, balls would be crushed out of those ballparks. But Candlestick had the winds coming in. They swirled. And, you know, Willie had some great plays in the outfield. It was one of the hardest outfielders to play in. But you're absolutely right. You could probably add another 50, maybe 100 home runs left on that title of all the games he played at Candlestick. Can you imagine if he played in today's ballparks? <laughs> How about Colorado? <laughs> That's the first thing I think. How about Willie Mays in Colorado? How many home runs would he have? I don't know how he, he would be way up there, no doubt about it. And uh, it's just the times have changed, but he's still Willie Mays. And all the eras of baseball 
that I've gone through and now you're learning, he's always going to be that number one guy in my mind. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. And something that Willie is probably keeping a close eye on is what you mentioned before, the best team in the National League, the San Francisco Giants, their first place in the NOS, best record. I mean, just everything's been clicking, the pitching. I mean, they they haven't even gotten to their full potential in terms of, of statistics on the offensive side of things. So what have you been kind of seeing with this group of players early on? Uh, I guess to recap, April, what have you seen? Well, I think you got to look at the starting pitching. The starting pitching is way up and maybe in the top three in earn run average, uh, going deep into games, five, six innings, it seems like. You've had a couple guys go seven and eight. But when you look at Gart Gosman, the, the ace of the staff, uh, how he pitched when, when they lost two games last weekend against the Padres to be that stopper. And everybody worked off each other in that long run they had at the end of April where every starter, it seemed like, was going six innings, five innings, it was remarkable. And you, you think about this rotation, and really when you look at Logan Webb and Gosman is the only two starters from last year, and you pick up Dee Sclafani, you pick up Alex Wood. I mean, those two guys have just been stellar. They've been guys that could be either one, two in a rotation, and yet they're three, four in this rotation. So, you know, looking at this rotation, I think it's been over above average. Can they keep it up? Yep. Johnny Cueto coming back this Sunday. Can he jump into this mix? It would be great because Johnny's got the experience that every starting pitcher would have. It's just going to see how healthy he is. But I look at the starting rotation, and then I look at the bullpen with Rogers, McGee, uh, a couple lefties that come in, Berger, and a couple other ones. They just need to define it. They need to define the roles in the bullpen. I always say this, and it's so much easier to pitch out of the bullpen knowing what role you have. So I look at that for the month of April really gelling uh, for the San Francisco Giants to be in first place. Yeah, I think the bullpen is something that they'll they'll need to work out, uh, especially with, you know, you look at a guy, as you mentioned, Tyler Rogers, who is a guy who's not a big strikeout guy. He puts the ball on the ground. And we've seen Gabe Kapler use Tyler Rogers, you know, with a three-run lead, with a two-run lead, or with like a six or five-run lead. So it's it's he's he's on pace right now, Bill, to appear in like 103 games or something <laughs> like that. So Tyler Rogers is going to be uh, is going to be is going to have one arm left by the end of this year. Uh, <laughs> but another guy I want to touch on is the resurgence of Buster Posey and. Uh, he looks great. I mean, his, he's flexible. He's flexible with his swing behind the plate. Um, we've seen some power return. I mean, just a, a guy who's always had a great opposite field approach. What have you seen from, from Buster early on here? Yeah, I think he's healthy, and I think that's the big thing about it. When you look at him 10, 12 years ago when he first came up as a rookie, he was that strong-minded catcher where he could you know, go in day after day and getting a, and a, the crouch for, you know, 120, 150, maybe more pitches and right back in it the next day. But at 34 years old, you got to save his knees for uh, August and September when you really need him. So I, I like how they're kind of saving him. He, he had a little hamstring pull in, in Colorado. We'll see how he comes back this weekend, the Padres series. But I think his legs are back and his hips are back. And as a hitter, if you can balance yourself by using your lower half as well as your upper half and as patent base hit to right center field going right field as you said going the opposite way that's what's great about Buster Posey seeing the ball so late into the zone 
and still having the balance to go to right field. So keep him healthy because he's definitely doing well behind the plate. The communication with the pitchers are there. His throws to second base are bullets. So I just think a healthy Buster Posey is what we're seeing so far this year. Yeah, I give a lot of credit to Buster Posey because we've heard so many times Buster Posey's going to get moved to first base. Brandon Belt's going to get traded. Posey to first, Posey to first, Posey to first. It's all we've heard. And it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. And I think that's a a testament of who Buster is and how much he loves the position. And uh, I think it's, it's definitely keeping him on the path to Cooperstown here. So we'll, we'll see how that works out near the end of his career. So big picture, will this, will, will there be some, you know, kind of heading back to earth with this team or could they stick around the top of the division for a little bit longer? Cause nobody well, predicted the three headed monster. They predicted a two headed monster, but nobody predicted, yeah. predicted the giants to be in the mix as well. You know, I think that one of the biggest things that every team goes through middle of the season, beginning of the season injuries. And I think that's what's going to make this team go farther. If these injuries keep occurring, Solano, a great hitter they lose. They, they lose La Stella. Um, even Lamont Wade Jr., who I thought is a really good talent they picked up. Uh, Johnny Cueto. I mean, these guys are all, you know, legit spots in this lineup. Now, of course, you pick up Talkman, and that was just a huge steal from the Yankees. That guy can play. He's an everyday player, gamer. Um, I thought that was a steal of a deal to get rid of Peralta and a player to be named labor for him because he's that kind of superstar. Now, hopefully, Yastrzemski comes back from the IL and gets a little more offense in the lineup. The offense just hasn't been gel, and it's been inconsistent. And if you can get both his pitching and consistency out of the lineup, yeah, I think they can hold first place. And I think they can do well against the Dodgers and the Padres. They've split with the Padres. They played them six games or three and three. Uh, they haven't played the Dodgers till next couple weekends after they go from Cincinnati and Pittsburgh. So that's when the head, head to head collision is going to go with the Dodgers. But as I said, the Dodgers are dealing with a lot of injuries too. Yeah, a hundred percent. We saw their, their, one of their top right-handers, Dustin May go on the disabled list. And I believe he's going to undergo Tommy John. So a tough break for, I mean, they have enough pitching. I think it's not a bad thing when you have David Price sliding back into the rotation. Not uh, a so, bad one <laughs> yeah. So I You're think I, right, though. They'll, they'll be just fine. But um, yeah, I think the Giants offense for a little bit there, they were relying on a, on the home run ball, uh, which I mean, we haven't said in years. So uh, I think eventually you're going to need those those two out hits to fall, and uh, looks like they're they're hoping to get that going here soon. So let's talk about your career. Uh, I was looking at some of the, the the baseball players and the history of Toledo, Ohio, in terms of baseball, and it's not it's not an amazing number of players that come out of Toledo, Ohio. So how did you do it? How, how did you know that kind of baseball was the path that you wanted to go down? Well, I think a lot of it when I was growing up, I followed the Tigers. And you probably heard me talk a lot about the 68 Tigers when they won the World Series. And uh, my guy was Al Kaline. I always wanted to play outfield. I played outfield in high school. And I was a good outfielder. And I made all state as an outfielder as a pitcher, too. But it was something that captivated me. It just was something that I wanted to learn more about. I'd, I'd do the scorebook every game. I'd be on the living room floor doing that. I'd have the transistor underneath my pillow listening to games and it was something I got to love the game of baseball and I'm so glad I did it because it's where I am now it's the knowledge that I learned back when I was a kid but you're absolutely right Toledo really didn't have 
handful of players, Freddie Zahn, Dick Drago, uh, Stan Clark after me came through high school. He pitched a little bit with Toronto. Danny Marsh is another one that played with Philly. Guys that you don't remember, but came out of Toledo. And, and it was something that I fought for. I was a tall, skinny kid that threw hard, but I hit my spots. And when I graduated out of high school, there was many colleges that wanted me, but nobody was going to give me that opportunity to pitch. So my parents went to with me to Ohio State, University of Michigan, Central Michigan. We went to six or eight different schools that were offering me, you know, scholarships. But my final question, Steve, was always, are I going to pitch? And they go, no, we're going to redshirt you. And I go, well, I don't want to come here. I don't want to lose a year. So I was one of the first pitchers, really players that chose junior college, community college of all places. And I loved it. I got to pitch. My coach loved me. I ended up recruiting some of the good players out of Toledo to go there. And it was Monroe County Community College in between Toledo and Detroit. And we won divisions. We were kicking butt. We were just having a great time. I got drafted out of there twice by Detroit. Didn't want to do, didn't want to go pro ball. I was with a good group of guys and I rode it out for two years. But the biggest move I made was I got an opportunity to play in Cape Cod. And uh, Cape Cod is one of the best college baseball uh, summer leagues you could go. And that's kind of where Kansas City and other teams got to see me because there's 10, 20 scouts at every game. And I was right in the rotation with Orlean Cardinals. And that's literally kind of where everybody saw me because going through Toledo, they didn't have the scouts that came. They had cross checkers, guys that were supposed to be scouts that really weren't scouts, you know? Oh yeah, I saw Lasky throw the other, he threw good. Then another guy would have to check me. And then another guy would check me. You know, they didn't have central scouting bureau where everybody would put their notes in and then you'd have teams come at you. So Toledo was a bridge, no doubt about it. Enjoyed living there, enjoyed, still have a lot of friends and family there. Uh, but it was somewhere where I started and, and literally I did a lot of stuff for my high school after that, put on some baseball clinics, made them money and really supported uh, high school baseball uh, back in Toledo because it's tough to play in the spring in Toledo when there's snow on the ground and it's 30 degrees and you gotta, you got to get ready to play a high school game. So it was a great start for me. I, I, I shake my head because I, it's been so long ago, but at the same time, I, I couldn't have asked for a better way to make my move. Yeah, you could always – I could always point out point – out, eh, can't talk. <laughs> I could always point out the the junior college players at a four year university. I could always I could always tell which ones transferred. There's some grittiness about them. Uh, so so it's definitely a path that the more uh, players should consider if they're not getting the opportunity at a four year college for sure. Uh, so drafted by the Royals, 1978. Um, we we hear so much about the the bus rides and the different cities and the experiences in the minor leagues. What are some of the, the, the premier ideas and, and things that you learned in the minor league level to prep you for the big leagues? Well, I think the first thing was the Kansas City Royals. They were a, a class organization for the minute I signed with them. Scouts coming to my house had folders of pictures of, of the Royal Stadium with the fountains. And it just, he, he made you believe you were a big leaguer. And that was one of the biggest things the Royals did with everybody. And then you went to Sarasota where they used to have the Academy of Baseball way before me even. And that's when UL Washington and Frank White were first coming up. They had an academy. They literally went to school in the morning. 
you did test, you learned about the game of baseball, you learned rules, you learned all the different things that the Royals were trying to teach you their way of playing baseball. Now, my rookie year, I came in as a third year college player. So I was only there maybe a couple weeks and it was way in the boonies in Sarasota. You, you, you really, you slept, you watched baseball, you got up, you had lunch, you were watching baseball, you went on the field, you were doing baseball. So they said, you're going to learn baseball the Kansas City Royal way. And I got moved up to A ball, then I got a jump to double A. And then uh, that's where I really started learning from the older guys in, uh, in Jacksonville when I first jumped up there. And it was really just to learn the game of baseball and learn what pitching was about and learning to set up hitters. The following year, I went back to Florida State League. And really, that really was a good educational part because I don't think I was ready for double A coming right out of rookie league. But when I went back to Florida State, I had Gene Lamont as my manager. I had Bill Fisher as my pitching coach. And it was a knowledge that I learned from the very start. These guys were professional players. Gene Lamont was also a Tiger, uh, played behind Bill Freehand back in the day. And Bill Fisher was one of the best pitching coaches I ever had. I, th I still think he owns a record of like 86 and two-thirds straight innings without a walk. So oh. he was really pushing throwing strikes. And I think that was the good thing that I learned from the little ways of jumping up until I got to Omaha and AAA. So what was your reaction when the Royals then flipped you to the Giants in 1981? Well, you know, I was playing winter ball because uh, I had jumped up from AA to AAA and then I went to Instructional League. At Instructional League, John Scherholz and Dick Balderson, uh, they were both the GM and assistant GM. They came down, they were trying to get us to go to winter ball. And uh, they called me in and they said, hey, Bill, you know, we were moving up in the organization real well and we'd like you to go to winter ball. And I said, no, I don't think I want to go to winter ball. I pitched enough and, you know, it's OK. I, I, I'm going to go back to Toledo and have a good winter conditioning. And John Scherholz looked right at me. He goes, you want to go to AAA next year? And I go, well, yeah, that's where I want to go. And he goes, so where are you going to get your passport tomorrow? And I go, why do I need to wait tomorrow? I'll go today to get it. I'll go to winter ball then. And that's how it really happened. I went to winter ball in Venezuela and I was in Venezuela and I got traded. I didn't even know I got traded. My mom sent me a telegram. She got this paperwork saying, did you know you got traded to the Giants? Now I knew San Francisco and you go back to Willie Mays, but I knew all the names, but I didn't know what the hell the Giants. I didn't know the organization. And when I got back from winter ball, I started learning a little bit. But what was good about it is when I came over here, they always say when you get traded, you're bummed. You know, oh, I wanted to be a Royal. But the other side is the table when you say, well, somebody wants you more than the team you're in. And I always say that to people that get traded. When I came to San Francisco, I couldn't have asked for a better position. They gave me an opportunity in spring training. I went to Phoenix. Alan Folks got hurt. I got called up. And from there on, I was in a rotation for probably three or four years straight. So um, the situation came the right time. And uh, now being part of the Giants for over 30 years, it's a great organization. There's great people in this. And all the players that I got to meet before me, after me, watching three World Series, I fell in the right spot. Hey, nothing says welcome to the big leagues <laughs> more like uh, better than Bill Lasky pitching a complete game shutout in your first start. Uh, <laughs> so I, I tell you what, that was nervous, too, because the other thing, too, Steve, is all those guys from the Expos I faced when I was with the Royals in AAA. So I knew the Tim Raines, the Wallachs, 
on and on that whole that whole lineup, except when it came to Andre Dawson, Warren Cromartie, Al Oliver. Then there was a little test, but uh, I I couldn't have been blessed for that day. I, I was dealing that day, twelve o'clock day game. They start chanting my name in the seventh inning, and I'm like, wow, I'm in the big leagues. This is pretty cool. Even though it was only five hundred people there, <laughs> it still sounded like fifty thousand. <laughs> So do you remember, okay, I'm going to test you here. Do you remember the, the starting lineup for the Giants that Not game? Uh, Johnny LeMaster was at short. I think Johnny Rabb caught me or Ransom. No, Ransom did. Ransom. Jeff Ransom did. Two for two. Uh, uh, Evans was playing third, Daryl Evans. Yep. Uh, Joe Morgan was at second. Uh, maybe Dave Bergman was at first. Jack Clark was in right chili davis and hackman leonard chili davis was in left Dwayne kuiper was at second oh kipe got to start kipe okay. got, yeah jeffrey leonard in center champ summers at first oh, okay and then jack, and jack clark you got that right he's in right I knew field. jack was out there he had the cannon in the right field you'd always want to see a guy at second and a base hit to right field and you just stand behind a catcher going you don't have a chance when jack threw because that dude had a cannon in the right field so speaking of 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 Kuiper, yeah, I mean, every, we all know him. We all knew obviously Crook and Kuiper, a dynamic broadcast duo in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. But you know a different side of Crook and Kuiper. You played with them. You got that opportunity to play with them, um, and so you're one of the few that witnessed that relationship on the field and and kind of the origin of what we're seeing now. So what was it like, you know, seeing them interact and hanging out with them? Well, Kipe was great because Kipe played in Cleveland and I knew him from Cleveland Indian days. So I got to know him right off the bat. Um, he was Mr. Cleveland when he played there. He was he was the mega star there and, and he had some great years in Cleveland. People don't realize it, even though he only hit one home run. The guy could play some second base. He had that backhand flip at second when the ball up the middle. He always threw sidearm. He could go to right field and, and catch the balls. I went through the infield and catch them. He was a fantastic second baseman. He just doesn't get the respect factor. But let me tell you, when guy uh, be on the mound, Kipe was very good at second base. Crook, on the other hand, he was a competitor, man. When he got the ball, don't even get in front of him the day before. He was just like that heckle and jekyll. You know, he was a jokester after the game when he won in the next few days. But the day before, he was serious. He was game-faced. And uh, but both those guys were clowns in the clubhouse. They they haven't changed a bit. I say they were better back then than they are now because back then they would do some wild, crazy things. But uh, they they were fun. They were fun teammates. Uh, they stuck up for each other. They stuck up for players. And they're, they're, you, you never just uh, you had to be on the right side of them because if you didn't, they would be playing prank signing all the time. Yeah, so they were better back then because now they can't say some things that they would have yeah, said back then. You got that right. And, and that's how it was. I mean, they they would. And, you know, they talk about being on the bench with bats, pretending they were on microphones. They did it all the time. And, uh, of course, it was X-rated back then or R-rated. Uh, you know, when a guy would make a mistake or an umpire would make a bad call, they would go off. But you would be on the bench just cracking up the whole time because they were they were a power combination back then as they are now and uh they have just made giants baseball so much better over the years through the world series and and you can't go on the other side with the hall of famer john miller and dave fleming uh i really believe those are the best four broadcasters in baseball and giant fans are lucky that can put on the radio and listen to john and dave and put the tv on and hear crook and kite no for sure for sure you got that right 
Um, too bad for the FCC because we can we kind of want to hear some of those <laughs> those X-rated stories. Um, so I, I read something about you, uh, a situation in 1982 about an All-Star game selection that kind of went wrong for you. It's I mean you should have been an All-Star but weren't. What happened there? Tell me. Well, in '82, I had a fantastic first part of the year. I think I was like seven and two, seven and three, with a maybe just a two six, two eight, or in run average, and I was dealing. And it was about uh, two weeks prior before the All Star game, and Frank called myself in and Greg Mitten in and said, "Hey, um, you know, Tommy Lasorda is picking pitching uh, lines, and both of you guys are up to be on the All Star team. I'm not certain it's going to happen, but we'll see it in next week or so." So Mooney and I are like, "Excellent." Mooney had a great. So sure enough, the, the names of the pitchers came out and both of us were named to it. Um, the ring guy comes in one of the days, I don't know what it was at our homestand and uh, they were given all-star rings out back then. It was like a high school ring. It wasn't that mammoth like they had it. So we had our rings, you know, sized up and we both were ready to go to the all-star game. And it just so happened the all-star game was in Montreal, Canada. And our final games before the road trip ended was in Montreal. So Mooney and I are like, this is great. We'll go to Montreal, finish in Montreal, stay over and do the all-star game. And we're psyched. We're excited. My parents, my family, we all had flights going to Montreal and about maybe second game uh, Murph comes out and we're, we're shagging in the outfield. Say, Hey, Frank wants to talk to you in a, in a clubhouse. So I go walking in and, and Frank goes, Hey, Tommy Lasorda wants to talk to you. And, and first thing I thought is maybe he's going to ask me if he, you know, can I throw an inning, two innings? Because I had pitched in Philadelphia before we went to Montreal. And I said, okay, no problem. Well, little did I know, Tommy gets on the phone and says, hey, Bill, you know, you're a rookie. Uh, you'll be on the all-star team, team many years from now. And you're just having a great year. And I'd like to ask you if you would give up your spot for Phil Negro. Well, I'm 22, 23 years old old enough what what awesome puts my old and i go what's going on and he goes well he believes phil's gonna phil's gonna um retire and he wants him to come on and i go what 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 would you think you, you would do and he goes i can't tell you because if i tell you then i'm gonna be the bad guy and i go so what do you want what do you want me to do and he goes it's up to you so he puts me back on speakerphone and I said, Tommy, can I think this over? Can I, you know, talk it over with some people? And he goes, no, I need a decision now. And I just said, here's Tommy Lasorda and Frank Robinson asking me to Phil Necro, who's going to be in the Hall of Fame. So I said, all right, give up my spot for Phil Necro. Walked out of the clubhouse. Mooney was the first person I saw, and he almost strangled me. He was so upset at me. Daryl Evans was upset at me. All these guys were upset at me saying, no, you deserve to be there. And I said, well, I didn't. I don't know where my all-star ring is. It's somewhere out there in the world, but uh, I gave it up. The following year, I came close, but I didn't get cut, didn't get put in. And uh, I never made it after that. And Phil Neeker ended up playing about another six or seven years. So uh, that was my all-star appearance. That was it. So in my own mind, I'm an all-star. <laughs> You're an all-star, Bill. We'll that should honestly be on your 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 record your you know all your baseball reference stat pages it should be there it's not fair uh but but i mean i probably would have done the same thing if i was a rookie and phil necro's going into you know, the hall of fame to it's a tough decision especially when i didn't have anywhere to go i couldn't go talk to somebody you know and here 
I'm a rookie. I, I, I'm happy to be in the big leagues. I'm throwing the hell out of the ball. Everything's working and I'm all excited to go to the all-star game. I'm an all-star. And all of a sudden I was flying home to Foster city, watching a the game. They announced it on the, during the game, but that's as far as as close. I got to an all-star game. That's a great story. <laughs> <For sure. laughs> um, so let's get into pitching real quick. I want to talk to you because I pitched in high school and the, the number one thing that I, I was told was, Hey, you know, if you had three pitches and you could throw them anytime for strikes, you'll be fine. Mix it up, change up your looks, et cetera, et cetera. What kind of clicked for you? I know you mentioned in the minor league level, you know, kind of limiting the walks and, and getting taught not to walk anybody and hitting your spots. So what were some of the, the keys to pitching that you would give a young pitcher? Well, the first thing I always tell people when I'm talking to pitchers or giving lessons, I always say, what's the best pitch in baseball? I'll ask you, what's the best pitch in baseball? You would a, say, it's a well-placed fastball. Fastball, curveball, slider. And my answer is, oh, one. Strike one is the best pitch in baseball because everything can go off of that. Your breaking ball can go off it. Your changeup can go off it. Having strike one on a hitter gives the pitcher advantage. That's the first thing that I learned back in days with Kansas City. Bill Fisher threw that in our brain all the time. Strike one, then go from there. Now, if you miss strike one, yes, a good placement of a fastball is the second best thing because you want to go outside. If you hear some of the stuff I throw on in extra innings, you have to learn how to throw inside and you have to have the confidence to throw inside. Don't let a hitter take that third of the plate away from you. That's what all good hitters do. They crowd the plate to try to take that pitch away from you. Most pitchers are fearful of that. That's why you don't get pitchers that go up higher and higher into college or even minor leagues because they don't throw inside. They have a fear of they're going to hit the hitter or they have a fear of I can't get the ball in. But once you get over the fear of that, that opens up both sides of the plate. And when you look at both sides of the plate, you can do so much with a fastball or a changeup with that type of mentality. So I go fastball first, breaking ball second, changeup third. You always have to have a changeup. You cannot just throw off two pitches. You said three pitches. My God, if you threw three pitches in high school, there's no doubt you could be playing in college because usually in high school, it's two pitches. If you have three and you can get three over, you're going to be a pretty good pitcher. A hundred percent. And that's listen up young pitchers. There's, there's, I know a few of them that listen. Um, Cause that's, that's baseball church right there. <laughs> uh, but yeah. yeah, it's not a hard concept throwing over strike one. Um, I always thought that, you know, if I get a one pitch rollover ground ball to short, that's better than a five pitch strikeout. So, I mean, yeah. that, that was always, cause you know, at the end of the day that adds up to, an extra inning that you would get to pitch. So, yeah, um, but you know, Steve, if you're a fire thrower, you know, you're throwing 98, 99. That's what those guys live off of striking people out. I threw 92, 90, but I pitched to contact. I want guys to hit ground balls. If I knew I had guys ground ball, just like, just like uh, Alex Wood, 11 ground balls in five innings. That's what he wants. He doesn't care about strikeouts. I never cared about strikeouts. I cared about getting in, getting out, less pitches, more innings. If, if you have some kind of thought pattern like that, it's okay to throw hard. It's okay to throw a strikeout or continue, but learn how to pitch. You can't just go out throwing gas all the time. And, and to learn how to pitch is learning the corners, learning the four corners of the box and things like that. And that's what pitching coaches should be teaching. 
A hundred percent, a hundred percent. All right, let's get into to you kind of sticking within the baseball community. I know you've coached and owned some Giants fantasy fantasy camp teams uh, for a long time now. So how, how awesome has that experience been? Getting to connect with you know the people that that pay to be there, getting to connect with alumni. What's it like uh, with with the fantasy camps? Well, this will be my 15th year putting it on. I've been a coordinator of it. I went to fantasy camp as a coach when I first started. And the first thing I thought when I first got into fantasy camp, I was like, man, I'm going to teach older people how to play baseball. (laughs) But when I got there and I saw the passion, I saw how well these guys played. They wanted to be a giant. They were experiencing every word that came out of your mouth to learn and then teach their kids or coach. It was, it was amazing. And that's why I became the coordinator. It was to put these camps on for females as well as males. We had a, we had a team almost of nine women and they were all kick-ass players. Some played softball, some didn't. They learned and go into batting cages, take lessons from Joel Youngblood, Hackman Leonard. I brought Will Clark down there one year. Will was just putting on clinic after clinic. But what it is, it's the passion of playing baseball. It doesn't matter how old you are. You can be 70 years old and still have the passion to play. And when I get this, I say it's fraternity because it's so many good people from all all acts of the world. I have people from France come from Germany to, to Australia to China. They all came in because they were giant fans. And some knew, knew how to play, some didn't. But when they left, the experience that I give them for a week in Arizona, it's countless. And the coaches I bring in, so many ex-giants, and I could go from A to Z with them, but I don't want to miss anybody, you know? And I bring Vita Blue in as my commissioner, uh, Holby Landreth, who's 92 years old, used to come for almost 20 to 25 years, the late, great Mike McCormick and Jimmy Davenport. They came all the time. And to sit on the bench and to talk to these players and to learn baseball through major league baseball players it's a great time and we play at scottsdale stadium everybody gets a full uniform we do lunches dinners breakfast we stay at the marriott suites it's a fun fun week of baseball and uh, it's going to go back up of course coronavirus last year uh, covid19 shut me down that was the first year i haven't done a fantasy camp in in 14 years and i do a little one at oracle park in november it's a little three-dayer. It's pretty cool to play at Oracle and uh, play under the lights. Um, but it's just, um, it's something that I think alumni players as well as active players, because I bring them in also to do little speeches and to meet people, but to understand Giant fans and how much they love the game of baseball. And for them to put that uniform on, it's like they're in the big leagues. And that's the whole experience I want them to understand. And I'm sure by the end of the week, they, they learn how to get over strike one. So there you go. <laughs> they do. They learn how to get nice tubs because their bodies are so sore and they can barely walk when they leave. When they come in, they're all excited. And I always say, just remember, don't run so fast Monday and Tuesday because you're playing Thursday and Friday and you don't want hamstring pulls and wraps all over your body the first couple of days. And uh, the more they come down, the more veteran players will say, slow down, slow down. And uh, it's a lot of fun, double hitters every day. And we do some great evening functions where a lot of the players will have a little circle talk and uh, tell stories. And like I said, I'm not going to start naming names because I'll forget guys. And uh, the best thing to do is I bring down 18 to 20 
22 alumni guys and they're storytellers and it's just a blast. Has there ever been anybody where, you know, that, that participated in this thing where you said, God, this person must, must've had like a professional baseball or played college softball. Like you knew they were good and they, they just showcased skills way better than anybody else. We've had some college players come down and, and they've really continued to play in the senior men's leagues, or like you say, some softball guys. Uh, but a lot of them, there's probably three or four guys on each team that are continuing to play baseball. And uh, you can see their talent. You can see how much they've learned how to play as well as um, your consistent play. And, and it's Woodley. We, we bring wood. You're, you're, you're using wood bats down there unless you're 60 and over. And if you're 60 and over, you can use aluminum and all females uh, use aluminum. Uh, but yeah, they're good games. There's no blowouts. It's not like 15 to one. They're usually seven, six, five, four. And you do get pitchers that can throw pretty well. We had a couple guys throw no hitters. And let me tell you, that was fun just to see a guy go out there for seven innings and throw a no hitter in fantasy camp. And, and it was a blast. Yeah. Madison Bumgarner is smiling somewhere listening to that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That, that I can't I can't even imagine all the all the torn hamstrings and all the injuries that <laughs> Yeah, there's a few. There's a few, yeah. Uh for sure. So, but yeah, I think the Giants do a great job. I probably better than any other team and I think a part of it is because they have such the big rich they have the big rich history of of um of talent and Hall of Famers, and they bring them all back, and I think they do that better than any other team. And uh, obviously, you bringing coaches back that have played with the organization and bringing them to the fantasy camp is definitely uh, a, a testimony to that for sure. Uh, so, I also know that you have some some softball coaching. You you coached at Aragon High School, is that right in San Mateo? Yeah, I did that for uh, six years, and uh, I had one daughter, so I learned uh, how to coach softball, which is a fun sport, and I really kind of delved into that with her at Burlingame and redid the Burlingame softball league. And then uh, we had like 101 girls when I started, when I left, they had over 500, took them to tournaments and got them to play a lot. I, I, there's probably maybe about 18, 25 girls that have gone on to college to play. Um, but it's something I, I have a passion for and I learned how to do it. I went to Aragon, like I said, for six years, I went to Palo Alto and coached there for three years um, and it's just something that I like to teach. And I always say I've coached boys baseball, boys know everything. You teach girls softball, they're like sponges. They want to know, learn, and they want to try it. And that's something that I tip my hat to the females because they want that knowledge. They, they want to learn and they want to know how to do it correctly. And repetition in so much is so important. You know that as an ex-baseball player. And I'll do three buckets of ground balls and the girls will go, can we have three more where the boys will go? I'm good. I'm good. I did it right. You know, and nothing against boys baseball. Get me wrong. I, I've coached some good boys baseball too. And there's some great boys baseball in Northern California. But I think by having a daughter and learning the game of softball, it's opened up my eyes to what's on the female side. And there is some fantastic girls programs in Northern California. What are some of the differences between baseball and softball is because I know I know uh, a lot of people can, you know, point to hitting and say hitting is kind of similar. It's the same. Is it the same game? Is it is it different? What are some of the differences? Yeah, hitting is totally different. Mm -hmm. uh, in boys baseball, you're striding in girls baseball. You take a step because yeah. it's on you so fast. Uh, the mound's closer. 
Um, there's tremendous amount of more pitches a pitcher throws in softball, a drop ball, a rise ball, a curveball, and kind of like a slider, a changeup, a knuckleball. Um, these girls throw everything. Um, it's a faster paced game. Uh, they're only usually 90 minute games because it's a fast pace. And as you know, watching girls softball, if you have a girl pitcher, that's phenomenal. Game's over in an hour because it is such fast pace. And these girls throw very quick. As you've seen many a times, big leaguers trying to face uh, some of the great softball pitchers and they can't even touch the ball because the movement of the pitch. And I always tell people, watch college softball you will see some of the biggest and best pitchers pitch for some of these great universities. And you also have the slap hit. You also have, you know, the bunts. They bunt a lot in softball. And uh, you got to play your outfield, sometimes deep, sometimes shallow, because a lot of girls will slap hit and, and try to duck, duck fart a, a ball in the left field or, or, or play the lines. You got to shift over. So you play the defense a little differently, uh, but at the same time, you really are trying to find that that lights out pitcher. Yeah, pitching is is where it's at, not just in softball, but I, I, you can make the case in baseball for sure too. Um, so, how did you get the? How did you end up in TV? How did you end up in radio? How did that? How did that go down? <laughs> well, Vida and Blue are you know we've been best friends for so many years, and we did a lot of events with the Giants when we retired, and we were at a bocce ball tournament. Matter of fact, John Madden. Uh, puts a bocce ball tournament so the Giants put a team together and we were out there and if you're around Vida and I you're going to laugh all the time we're screwing around all the time and Ted Griggs was um, one of the new uh, owners or general manager of of Comcast back then it was Comcast and he said did you guys ever think of doing pre and post game and I said to Vida I said TV and they go yeah TV and I go I don't know if I'm ready for TV and Vida goes are you going to pay us and Ted goes, well, of course. He goes, okay, we're going to do it. And I looked at him and I go, do you have any idea what you just said? Oh, we'll do it. We'll do it. So sure enough, we go do our first pre and post game. And Greg Papa's there. And he's fantastic. One of the best in the business. And we come on camera and here Greg Papa is talking just like you and I are talking. And I'm looking like, where's he reading this? And I look and there's no, he's talking and you know, Greg, he's knowledge plus. And we go to commercial as we just come in and say, hi. And I go, I, I, I can't do this. And buddy goes, why? And I go, did you hear him? He didn't even read that. He was talking and it just blew me away. And, uh, from there on, Greg goes, Oh, you'll be fine. Relax, relax. Well, I ended up doing nine years there. We did two world series. We did two parades. We, we, it was just fabulous. Vida and I became a great pair. Uh, Bip Roberts was on back then. Sean Estes joined us. Uh, and then it just starts streamlining. And then, oh, about the sixth or seventh year, Vita was just getting tired. They're, they're long days. You're there three, four hours before the game to prep. And as soon as the post game's over, you're done. But it's a good, you know, 10 hours a day. And, um, you know, everybody thinks you get paid a lot of money. You don't get paid a lot of money. It's really getting on TV and learning the game and being an analyst. And we did that, and then KNBR grabbed us, and I don't know if you remember Sports Phone 680, they used to have that on, and they threw us on radio, and everybody started listening to us. It was like we were, you know, rock stars. We did TV, we'd come and do radio, and everybody was Bill and Vida, Bill and Vida, and we did that for about five years, and then Vida was 
kind of slowing down a little bit. He's 71 now. And so uh, I continued to do TV with other analysts. And then Vita and I did a radio show for three years. It was on the hill with Vita and Bill. And we did two hours on Saturdays. Uh, every other Saturday it was. And we brought a lot of ex-players on and started talking. And a couple of years ago, Vita was just like, I, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. So uh, um, uh, I'm trying to think of Jeremiah Crow called me in and said, look, uh, we'd like to keep Marty on pregame and put you on postgame. And I kind of asked him what it is all about entailed. So I did it last year. And then Marty had some health issues and I ended up doing the pregame show. And it was great. And uh, TV, I had to give up because I was doing radio every Saturday and Sunday and they couldn't fit me in during the week. So it was kind of like, you know, I had to pass and they just said, look, you know, go do radio. That's what you want to do. So it was fine. I did nine years of TV. Now this is my second full year uh, doing the pre and post game. And then this year they came on and we added Carrie Crowley. And so Marty, I, and Carrie do the pregame show for three hours. And then I do the extra innings for two hours where I get callers and we talk baseball, but uh, uh, during the pandemic, it was tough. It was just tough to try to keep uh, the motivation for uh, people to listen and talk and, and baseball was 60 games and everything was just a cloud. And this year it just seems like that cloud is finally filtering out and baseball's coming back. People are going to be back at the ballpark and hopefully we're on the right way to uh, get all this back together. Yeah. And, and you did the TV. That's great. Now you could not worry about how you have to look uh, <laughs> with the radio and makeup, Steve, it was the makeup. It was like, you had to get makeup. And the first time I did it, they said, Hey, Bill, we want you to go in the green room and get makeup. I go, no, I'm good. I'm, I'm fine. I don't need no makeup. And so the lady that did it, which was a sweetheart, she went into the general manager and the guy comes in and goes, Hey, Bill, come here. I said, what? And he goes, you don't want to do makeup? And I go, no, I really, I, I don't need any makeup. I'm fine. And he goes, do you want to do TV? And I go, yeah, I really do. And he goes, go get the makeup on. And just like John Shuros, I said, okay, I'll go get the makeup on. No problem. And I went and sat down. I just closed my eyes and let her just go whatever she wanted to do. And uh, from there on, it was like, whatever, you got to do what's supposed to be. And it was fun. Vida hated it. Vida just hated sitting in that in that chair and getting powdered and puffed and everything else. But uh, it was a fun nine years. And you know what, down the road, I may jump back into it. But right now, I'm really happy doing Saturdays and Sundays on KNBR and uh, talking to giant fans on the radio. And and really just kind of, you know, the knowledge of Marty Leary and Kerry Crowley and myself, we give it a, a triangle different ways of talking the game and our knowledge and all different parts are different. But at the same time, they're similar. I feel like that's such a such an ego check. You know, you think you're a good looking guy, then you show up to the NBC Bay Area <laughs> studios and they're like, Oh man, you need some makeup. So it's, it's do they well, do I they tell you what, Steve? The lights when you go on that stage, there are so many lights. Mm -hmm. It is, and let me tell you, it's like 30 degrees in there. They keep it freezing in there. I mean, you are literally freezing in those and you have to stare at the camera, huh? Well, you learn how to do it. It's I, I always looked under the camera and they'd always say, looked in tunnel because the tunnel was a lens. And I finally got to know it. And once you get over it, it's fine. It's just those first few that you're trying to teach in your brain. Just look in there. You didn't, you know. But when we were doing the World Series, I mean, we had millions of people watching us. Yeah. And one day Vita comes in, he goes, Do you have any idea how many people are watching us? 
And I go, I really don't want to know. And he goes, well, let me tell you, we had this rating and we had, you know, 3.8 million. I said, I don't want to know that because the first thing you think of is there's 3.8 million people watching us. But, you know, if you don't think about it and you're just in the element of Vita and Greg and, you know, Bip and you start talking baseball and you don't even know how many people are watching you and how many TVs and bars and restaurants are on. And, uh, but I tell you what, I, those two world series we did 2012 and 2014 were some of the fun, fun shows and to work with Greg Papa and to go through all those elimination games. Yeah. And then we ended up doing the parades and that's what was really cool. Uh, our whole team won an Emmy award for doing the first parade. Uh, in 2012, 2010, I was on the alumni parade, on the alumni uh, float, and that was pretty cool to go down Market Street the first time they won the World Series. That's awesome. Yeah. Next, if you ever do go back in the TV and Greg Papa's still there, just screw with him a little bit and just have your have your face like this the whole time, not even looking at the camera, not even looking at him. That would be give him great. the coach That's right. Hey, yeah, Steve, let him- me ask you. Let me ask you a question that I can ponder on you. Go for you were it. A pitcher. You were a pitcher. You pitched in high school. You might have played a little junior college. What did you enjoy about pitching? Oh, everything. So I, yeah, I did. I pitched in the, well, not in the, I pitched in the WCAL, but I mean, Reardon is not considered one of the, the powerhouse baseball schools, of course. But I'd say that one thing that I took away from it was you're in control. I mean, that's, that's what every pitcher has to understand. And uh, you mentioned that the pitchers that work fast on the softball side of things, you know, the game's done in an hour. I like that. I like moving quick. I like working at my own pace. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and it's still, it's something I miss. I miss, you know, messing with the hitter and, you know, on O2 pitch fastball extended, you know, set up a, you know, another fastball, set up a uh, slider, a changeup. It was fun. And it was fun, you know, just being with everybody, the camaraderie, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, when a guy makes a great defensive play on the mound, um, you know, you you still blame yourself. But, you know, thankfully you have a guy there. So but pitching, no, it's you, great. When you watch when you watch big league games, do you kind of go through scenarios of how they set up hitters? And because, you know, if you have kids watching this and I'm, I'm glad they are, even if the high school college game, I always tell them to watch the game and chart the pitches. Yeah. Guys don't chart the games that much anymore. And you really learn how Buster Posey or Kirk Caselli set up hitters, but it's the second and third time around that pitchers need to understand what to do the second and third time and to learn what different ways to approach it. And that's the whole key in high school and college that I think they should be teaching more of. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think that the great thing about major league baseball and the information that has come out of it now is that, I could go online and I could see the percentage of times guys throw their slider. Like Matt Whistler with the Giants has a slider that he uses more than Sergio Romo. And that's insane to me, but uh, he's, he uses it more than the fastball by a lot. I think he throws it like 80% of the time, which is crazy. So, mm-hmm. you know, you know what's coming and high school, you don't have the luxury of having all that information. So you kind of have to, go based off of where the guy's standing. Does he have an open stance? Does he have a closed stance? Some of the stuff that you would do way back when, 30 years ago. So it's it's kind of like a throwback in terms of the game. Um, there's not really new technology involved. I guess the only the only new school stuff was we did some some of the driveline warm-ups with with the arm and the the J bands are different. Uh, they've become 
very important with some of these these big league starters and big league uh, relievers. So, no, it was definitely crazy. And I think you're you're facing talent. And uh, Bill, I'm sure you know the WCL pretty well. It's, it's talent. I mean, you go out and, you know, you're facing the non-league schools like South San Francisco and you're blowing them out. Then, you know, you get, you know, an ego check when you go and in, in, in down the San Jose and face the Middies and the Valley Christians and the St. Francis. It's tough because these guys have, you know, for example, uh, the, the Boston Red Sox had a number one pick who was out of uh, Midi and we played against them, Nick York. And um, I mean, I remember the at bat. I remember the entire at bat. He singled to right field. Um, won't happen again. In fact, no. <laughs> uh, but he singled to right field, and um, I, they're good hitters. So I think that's one thing that that pitchers need to. And another thing I always tell people that you know, because once you become a senior, you know, and the freshmen's coming in, they they look up to you and they want to know what you're doing to be successful. And the one thing I always say is, you know, as you mentioned, get ahead first of all, and throw strikes but throw strikes within strikes so it's one thing to throw a strike you know at a guy's belt that is up in the zone who and he could hit it you know 400 feet to center that's one thing but it's a different thing to learn to utilize low and away you're uh, learn to utilize at the knees low and in and get a ground ball instead of you know, always just trying to throw the ball Changing over the plate. the eyesight of the hitter is what I always say. Change the eyesight of the hitter. Yeah. Jake McGee, throw the elevated fastball, throw it down in the zone. If you can do that and establish the hitter that way, the hitter is going to be, you know, the greatest hitters are three for 10 when you think about it. And most of them are only two for 10. Hey, I like yeah. the chances. <laughs> yeah, that's what I always say. I always say, get the hit off somebody else. I want you out today. Yeah. <laughs> I like the chances for sure. And um, no, but it was a lot of fun. And um, yeah, I decided to to hang it up after, I mean, COVID shut down my senior year. Um, so we were, we were actually in Burlingame at Burlingame high school. I believe it's called Washington park, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a nice, um, that area. It's a, it's a nice little ballpark. I, I'll go over there a lot. The Ivy it's got the Ivy there too. And um, we were just about to play and first pitch came and, our first pitch did not come right before first pitch. The athletic director walked on the field and said, Hey, you guys had a, had a COVID uh, positive COVID test. So we had to shut down and we never went back. So I figured that was the right time. I wanted to go into to journalism, sports broadcasting, and here I am. So um, good point. And I, I think what you're doing now and uh, understanding what other people have done and what, what your first brick is as you're building that wall to get what you want to do is to do exactly what you're doing. Talk to many players, talk to different people, talk to announcers, talk to journalists, because those are the things that you have to grasp for yourself to learn from as an apprentice, because that's what you're kind of are right now. You're an apprentice learning the tools, learning the tools of- uh, of, It's Vita, uh, hang up. (laughs) No, broadcasting, and that's kind of what you want to learn. And if you can do that, and absorb it and understand each you know podcast you do or each interview you do to bring more of that to you then you're on the right path and i and just talking to you for the last 45 minutes there's no doubt you're on the right path um you do your homework and that's the biggest thing i always tell people do homework uh one a couple close friends of mine i always have yellow pads the old yellow pads that i always say fill your yellow pad up but only use 25 percent of it and always know you have more than what you need 
And that's the biggest thing that I learned from when I started doing radio and TV, my radio, and I go to do my interviews, I have almost a page and a half. Do I use, I only use a half a page because as you do, you tee it up for the interviewer, tee it up, let the interview go with it. And you just keep teeing up and you did a fabulous job today, Steve. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. We've had some good conversations and it's almost been a year since I started this. And the first, the first person I had on was a high school teammate and it's, it's grown, it's grown, it's grown. And I've had some unbelievable conversations. So I appreciate you joining the show today, Bill. Um, so for the listeners and the viewers, you guys could follow Bill on Twitter uh, at Lasky 19. Uh, so check that out. Uh, he, He's always tweeting about the minor league level, always tweeting about the San Francisco yeah, Giants. 19. Yeah, at Lasky 19 on Twitter. And, yeah. you know, the biggest thing is uh, the biggest thing is on radio. Call me. Call me on post games. I always like new callers. And Steve, yourself, give me a call. Let's talk Giants baseball on my post game shows because that's where I really like to talk baseball. And Giants fans from all over the world called me. Last week I had a guy from New York. The next caller was from Hawaii, and I thought that was really cool. So – Join me on KMBR on weekends. My phone lines are always open. As you know, 808 KMBR, give me a call. And uh, again, Steve, it's a pleasure talking to you today. And please bring me on again when you want. And if you need any other help, you know where to find me. Awesome, Bill. Thanks. I appreciate it. You guys could subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you find your podcast we are at. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RizzoCast. Thank you guys for listening and have a great rest of your day.